Uh, we're in a series called Faith, a first century faith for the 21st century. And we're looking through the uh, book of Romans. This is a book that the Apostle Paul wrote um, and uh, most likely he wrote it uh, during one of his missionary stops on Acts chapter 20 when he was in Greece. And uh, he's writing to the Roman church. It's really a collection of house churches and he's looking forward to coming and visiting them. He would spend two imprisonments in Rome before his execution in 67 A.D., the book of Romans, however, is Paul's magnus opus. It's his greatest of all of his epistles that the Holy Spirit wrote through him. If you understand the book of Romans, then you understand the main themes of the New Testament. And so we're going through this. This is um, our fourth week in the book of Romans. And uh, I want to start off. Uh, the topic today is Paul's going to talk about why none of us is considered to be a good person before God. Why none of us is considered to be a good person before God according to the standards of God's law. That's the topic. None of us are good before God according to the standards of God's law. And um, I want to read to you a poem here. We're going to bring it up. I know you can't read it. Um, so I'll read it for you. This is a, a poem that uh, as you guys know, Lorraine and I and Darcy and Keen and Ethan and, and some other family members, we were in, uh, we went on a trip to Europe and we were in London uh, one particular day and we were walking along the Thames River and there was a man there and he, he just had this typewriter and he had this sign that said, Poet for Hire. I go, oh, that's kind of interesting. You know, London has this rich uh, literary history. And so I stopped by. I go, what are you doing? He goes, well, you know, just give me a topic. And I'll type you an original poem right on the spot. And you can just donate whatever you want to donate. And so um, I actually gave him several topics. One of the topics I gave him was I just said, why don't you just write a poem um, on what it means to be human? Okay, and that's all I'll say. Uh, just call it the human and then just write what you think uh, that, should, that, that should mean. And so I know you can't read it, but I'm going to read this for you, what he came up with. And he says, um, The craft we steer by, that we negotiate the service of the planet with, is that which we call human. The conveyance, two-legged, like the birds, as hubristic as that, but without the gift of flight, being unworthy of flight, but upright and proud in that way, and looking straight ahead into the uncertain future without deviation on that horizontal time track, unidirectional. You know, this is really poetry right here. Um, and being haunted by dreams and visions that take us from our duties, divert us from survival, and lead us down... Um, Quixotic paths, chaotic paths that are the only route to glory, not just to dreams, but to the place the dream to but to place the dream before the waking eye to sacrifice it all for the resplendent vision. And uh, that was his take on what it means to be human, that we as human beings are kind of 
wander about in this earth, pursuing our dreams, pursuing our visions, and we can stumble at times, but we're always reaching higher for this, this ideal dream and vision that we have for a better life, a better humanity. And that was his take on what it meant to be human. If we were to look in the Bible and to ask the question and, and just say, hey, Paul, how do you define what it means to be human? What is the core essence? What, what kind of poem would you write if we said, uh, tell us about the human condition? Would you write about human dreams? Would you write about human visions? Would you write about how we're all striving forward for the upward call of a greater humanity? Is that what you would write? And what we are going to see in our passage today is really God's view of the essence of what it means to be human in relationship to the law of God. Okay, now before we get there, um, I want to take a step back. We'll go on to the next slide. Um, and uh, the title of this message is Romans chapter 3, verse 1 through 20. And the title of this message is All Are Guilty at the Law. All are guilty before God's law. This is a topic we've been looking at this the last few weeks. And just to give us a background, kind of step back into the macro picture of what's happening thus far in the book of Romans. Um, in Romans chapter 3, uh, which we will get to next week, the second part of Romans chapter 3, the Apostle Paul is going to sum everything up and say, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And before that, he's making these arguments in Romans chapter 1 and Romans chapter 2, which we've looked at the last few weeks. And his argument to support what he's going to say, that all humans are guilty before God and are sinners. He says in chapter 1 that all Gentiles are, all non-Jewish people are guilty of self-worship. They are guilty before God because they don't worship God, they worship themselves. Romans chapter 1. In Romans chapter 2, his argument that we looked at last week was all Jews and all Gentiles, that's every human being, falls into one of those two categories, um, are guilty according to God's law. And now in chapter 3, uh, he's going to reiterate that argument and say all of us are guilty, but he's going to take it from a little bit different angle. And so we're going to come back. Um, let's go ahead and go forward. In Romans chapter 3, verse 1 through 20, let's go ahead and stand now, and we will read God's word together. Romans chapter 3, verse 1 through 20. We don't have it on the screen, so you have to follow along on your phone uh, or on your Bible. Romans chapter 3, verse 1 through 20. Paul says this in the first eight verses. He's going to kind of make a complicated argument at first, but we're going to summarize that in a moment. He says, verse 1, Then what advantage has the Jew, or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though every one were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Verse 5. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. 
For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why do, why not, why not do evil uh, that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. Verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. No, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of ass is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There's no fear of God before their eyes. Verse 19, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Let's pray together. Fathers, we gathered here today. Um, It is our desire that we may know your law. So that we may come to know your righteousness, your righteous character, and we may come to know our unrighteous character. And that is why we are here, Lord, because we have come by the law of faith in Jesus Christ. And yet we dare not forget uh, the place that we have been uh, brought up from, the pit of hell that we have been rescued from for those who believe. And so, Lord, my prayer is for this time, for anyone who is a believer, that we would be reminded of how we are to view a fallen, unbelieving world. We are to be reminded of the grace and mercy that you have given to us uh, through the cross of Jesus Christ. And I also lastly pray for any unbelievers who might be here, Lord. May they be cut to the to the heart, convicted of their sin. May they nod in agreement with the truth of God's word. And as you speak to them, may they come to an understanding of their need, their wretched condition, and their need for the mercy of God through Christ Jesus. And so we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, go ahead and have a seat. Thank you very much. So what we're going to do is this. I'm going to, uh, we're going to take a look at these 20 verses. I'm going to go fairly rapidly through the first 18 verses. And in the first eight verses, I'm not going to go through uh, these eight verses in in great great detail. It's a very complex um, line of reasoning that Paul is giving here that could literally be an entire sermon on its own. But instead, when we go to verse eight, one through eight, let's uh, Go there. Um, Verse 1 through 8, I'm going to summarize what Paul is saying here in these first eight verses. Um, Paul is essentially responding, he's anticipating the attacks that the Jews will give to him when he has proven that the Gentiles are sinners by the law, the Jews are sinners by the law. He is anticipating three attacks and he's proactively answering these attacks in verse 1 through 8. Um, And I'm just kind of summarizing what he is saying here because it's fairly complex. 
complex. So the first thing is Paul is saying in verse one through eight is he's saying, even though God sees you, the Jewish people as guilty before the law, you, there is still value in being Jewish. Okay, because you as the Jews, it says in verse 1 and verse 2, you are the circumcised people. You are set apart. You have been given the oracles of God, verse 1 and 2. So the first thing Paul is saying here, he's saying, look, even though you're guilty, you unbelieving Jews, you're still special in God's eyes because you're chosen. You're set apart in terms of from the pagan nations, in terms of God's uh, choosing you to be the bearers of um, his law. And you have been given that, um, though it doesn't save you, but it is still valuable to be chosen as a Jew. The second thing that he is saying in verse 3 and following is he's saying, God is still faithful to us. God is still faithful. He says in verse 3 and uh, verse 4, but some people, what if some were unfaithful? Does their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? Faithfulness of God? By no means. God is true. To ev- and everyone is a liar compared to him. So the second thing he's saying here is he's saying, even though we're all guilty before the law, um, and Jews are guilty before the law, it doesn't mean that God is unfaithful to you even though he sees you as a sinner. He's still faithful, even though we're faithless. And the third thing that Paul is saying here, when you go on to um, verse five, uh, 5 and following, is he's anticipating the attack that the Jews will say that God is not righteous. Yeah, Paul, you're telling us that, the, that we Jews are guilty before the law. Does that mean that God's unrighteous? And so I was saying, no, he's saying, no, God is still righteous. Okay. And it, it just be, we don't want to keep sinning to, to magnify God's righteousness either. God has a right to judge. That is essentially what Paul is saying in the first eight verses. And I want to go on um, beyond that now. Let's go to verse, the second part of verse nine, all the way down to verse 18. And actually in verse 10 through verse 18, because in verse 9, he says, Are Jews any better off? Not at all. Uh, we, for we are already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. And this is in verse 10 and through verse 18, Paul's argument for why we are in sin. He's going to describe three elements of who human beings are. Remember we heard that poem I gave to the poet, talk about what it means to be a human being. And he's like, well, what it means to be a human being is to pursue a vision of glory and to overcome obstacles and to work for a better humanity. This is what Paul is saying of what it means to be a human being. And he gives a description on three different levels. He says that our character is evil. He says that the words that come out of our mouths are evil. And he says that our actions are evil by nature. If you look at these verses in verse 10 through 12, he says our character is evil. That's why he says there's none righteous. No one seeks for God. No one um, does good. Not even one. And then he goes on to, to a second 
description of what comes out of our mouths naturally. In verse 13 and 14, he says, what comes out of our mouths, we are like open graves. There's death coming out of our mouths naturally. There's venom that we spew on other people. We slander, we gossip, we hate, we curse people. We have bitterness. And so not only is our character not good, but our mouths spew evil. In verse 15 and verse 16, he now says, our actions are naturally evil. We're naturally shed blood. We cause ruin. We cause misery. There's no peace in our world. No peace in the human heart. No fear of God. And this is a blistering diatribe against the nature of the human soul. And as believers, we should look at this and say, this reminds me of who I used to be before Christ. Lest I forget. This reminds me of what the primary problem with people are in the world. This is the nature of man. And uh, when he's looking at this in verses 10 through 18, he's really echoing what the Old Testament has said up until this point. Moses had written in the book of Genesis when he was talking about the flood of Noah's day in Genesis 6. He says, man's heart was continually wicked. And that's why God wiped out the entire planet other than Noah and his family. David said in Psalm 14, of which uh, verse 10 and 11 and 12 and the following is, is taken from, David said in Psalm 14 that the Lord looked down upon men. All have turned away from God. All have become corrupt. The prophet Isaiah said in Isaiah 64 that all of our good, all of our good works before God are like filthy rags. And that phrase that Isaiah used in Isaiah 64, filthy rags, it actually translates in the Hebrew as a used woman's menstrual pad. Something that is to be discarded and that is filthy. The prophet Jeremiah said in Jeremiah chapter 13 and Jeremiah chapter 17, in 13 and 17, he said that people do not, cannot do good who are accustomed to doing evil. He said that the heart is deceitfully sick and wicked beyond repair. Now I read this. And this does not sound like the positivity of that poem that I got from the poet on, on the bank of the Thames in London. This sounds like a very negative, very confident view of humanity. Now, when we hear these verses, we need to understand that what Paul is not saying and then what he is saying. What is Paul not saying here? When he says, no, there is none not righteous. No, not one. No one seeks after God. None of us do does good. Not even one. Verse 11 and 12. What does he really mean by that? Okay, so when he says there was no one good, no one righteous, he's not saying that all of us are as bad on a daily basis as we could be. He, he, he understands, and you and I understand, that none of us is as bad as we could be. 
we can be far worse in terms of our actions and our words just on a practical daily level. And so the fact that we're not as bad today as we could be as people today doesn't mean that we're good. So he recognizes that when we're not, when he's saying that we're not good, it doesn't mean that just because we're not as bad as we could be that we are good. He's also saying that, he's also not saying that human beings are incapable of doing anything good. And this is important to understand. He is not saying that human beings are completely incapable of doing anything that God might, might consider to be a good work. Examples. Okay, I was talking with someone who's a doctor or in medical school this morning, and he does surgery, right? And, you know, he assist, he's an assist with other doctors. He goes into surgery, and let's say, you know, he has to stitch someone up or, you know, work on their eye or their nose or something and, and kind of fix them in surgery. Now, let's say he does that successfully. Now, is God going to look at that act and say, that was an evil act that you just did? You, you successfully healed this person in surgery? No. God would say, that's not an evil act. That's, that's a good thing that happened. If you walk out the door and, um, you know, you, you're kind to someone or you do a, um, you kind of save someone's life or give someone some money. It, and, and let's say you're not even a believer here and you just walk out the door. You're, you're, you, you just do a favor for someone at work tomorrow. Okay. You, you take upon their work on your shoulders that should have been theirs and you're an unbeliever, is God going to say that that's a bad, evil thing you did to help out this person who was desperate? No. And Paul understands that. He understands that human beings in their natural spiritual state are capable of doing some common good things that God, here's the key, through his common good grace would say that's not completely evil. So what is Paul saying here when he says in verse 10 and 11 None is righteous, no one good, no one understands, no one does good, not one evil. This is critical that we understand this. What he is saying is this. The best of what we do that we consider to be good, a good work, is evil compared to Jesus Christ. Compared to Jesus Christ's perfection and his goodness and his perfect living out of God's law, even the best of what we do is evil. Because it's imperfect. And secondly, what he's saying is even the best of what we do is still infected with sin. That, that is the, um, that is the uh, reformed doctrine of total depravity. You've heard that phrase before, man is totally depraved. That doctrine, total depravity, does not mean that man is totally depraved because he's as bad as he always could be. What total depravity means is that sin infects, every, in some way, every action we do, every thought that we have. It doesn't mean that everything we do has no, no ability to be completely evil. Like, I'll give an example. I, a lot of you guys know that um, I like ice cream. And one of my favorite places to buy ice cream is a place called Scoops. Right? I bought ice cream for you, many of you guys. It's a favorite of mine. They make their own ice cream. And I've been going there for about 15 years. And um, I want you to imagine. Now, so I get ice cream there. There's some, some uh, ice cream cartons in my freezer right now at home. <laughs> Every morning, 
Uh, now, uh, about half the weeks in the morning, I'm the one that, that's been doing this over the past few weeks. I take my dog Rocket for a walk, all right? And I take him for a walk for about a half an hour. And on that walk, he goes number two about four times. Okay, I got to bring four bags with me, right? And pick that stuff up. Um, and I'm like, dude, you, you can't just go one time, right? And then, but it's four times. And I want you to imagine for a moment, I get home and I get my scoops ice cream. I scoop it in there. Um, but I also took a little piece of the excrement of Rocket, just a little piece, just a small little piece like that, maybe a teaspoon. And I just kind of mushed it in my fingers like this. And then um, I got this ice cream and I kind of dropped it in there. All right, in one part. And just, I just mixed a little part of it. It didn't touch all the ice cream, but it mixed, you know, some of it, right? And then I go, Darcy and Kim, Daddy has some ice cream for you. And it's our favorite flavor. It's brown bread. But um, there's a little bit of uh, Rocket's excrement in there. Now, when you taste a lot of it, you won't even know. It'll taste great. But there will be some particles of his excrement in every bite, even though you won't be able to taste it. And some of it, you will taste it. It's really bad, okay? Why don't you have some ice cream? What it, of course, they're going to say, we'd all throw it away, right? And, and that is the essence of this, of total depravity. It is not so much that everything that we do represented by the ice cream is complete manure. It's that manure covers over everything that we do. To a degree, even if we think it tastes good. And compared to Jesus, with that kind of enormous galactic leap in our unrighteousness to his righteousness, then it's all manure when you compare it to Jesus. Now, uh, you have to get a grip on how important what Paul is saying here. This doctrine of total depravity. No, no one is good. There was no one who does good. No, not one. Our throats spew evil. Our feet run to evil. Our character is it. Why is this so important? It's because when you understand what Paul is saying here in Romans 3, when you fully, not just intellectually understand, but you then apply this to understanding the world and how people's human hearts actually work, what then makes sense to you is why the world is the way it is. Why we cannot solve the deepest problems of the human heart, human evil. There is no poet, no philosopher, no scientist, no scholar that has been able to solve the two biggest problems that have ever plagued humanity. What are the two biggest problems that have ever plagued humanity? It's not suffering, by the way. Jesus did not come to eradicate suffering. He came to identify with suffering. Jesus came to eradicate the, the top two problems human beings have had from day one. And that is the problem of evil and the problem of death. The problem of sinful evil and the problem of death. Those are the two biggest problems human beings have. If we don't have those two problems, we don't need Jesus. We don't need a Savior. So those who live without Jesus Christ, this is not a description of who believers are anymore. Because believers are considered to be saints in Christ Jesus. What this is a description of, verse 10 through 18, is a description of people who are living in unbelief. And if you are here and you are not a follower of Jesus Christ, you have to be crystal clear. What the Bible is saying to you from start to finish is not 
Try and be a good person, and then when you get to heaven and you die, maybe God will think it's more good than bad, and then you'll be cool. He'll say, hey, you're one of my guys. Get over here. No, what the Bible is actually saying is that compared to Jesus, everything we do is no one does good. Now, you think about this for a moment, you guys. If this was not true, if what Paul was saying in verse 10 through 18 was false, if it was false, then you'd have a much different world today, right? You, you would have an unbelieving world, follow me, able to fix the deepest problems of sin in the world without God. If what Paul was saying was incorrect and false, then you and I would be able to look around at the world around us here in the 21st century and we will say, you know what? An unbelieving world has been able to solve the problem of human evil without God. Do you see that? We don't, right? Critical race theory has not solved the problem of racism. Feminism has not solved the problem of the mistreatment of women. Socialism has not solved the problem of poverty. Psychology and psychiatry have not been able to solve the insanity of the human mind. The wellness movement has not been able to solve people's anxiety and depression and suicidal tendencies. Transgenderism has not been able to solve identity dysphoria. Politics has not been able to solve and bring peace to warring, the warring humans. Social media has not been able to curb human hatred and boasting and discontentment that is expressed on social media. You see, if what Paul was saying was false here, we would be able to look at all of the world's efforts that we just mentioned, and we would be able to say, the world is able to solve the problems of the human heart without God. But I think we can all look around and see that to be false. See, when you listen to, it's so easy to read this, right? And just think, not really grasp the depth of what Paul is saying. We can just kind of see this as this intellectual thing. I, I was riding in the car with, uh, I went to lunch after the morning service with Josh and Kyle was in the car. And we went to Grand Central Market. Darcy was there too. And uh, we met the commodities for lunch. And Josh was uh, in, in the passenger seat, and he, uh, he, had, he had heard the sermon, and he said something really profound. I said, you know what, Josh, I'm going to mention that in the afternoon service, what you said, because it's so, uh, so right on. And he said, you know, I was listening to your sermon this morning, and I came to this realization and Josh is a smart guy. He's a medical student um, at USC, so he's an intelligent guy. And, he, and Josh is a professing believer. He said, I think I've realized that um, to understand that we are evil in the end is not an intellectual thing. It's a heart issue. It's an issue of the heart. I said, well, tell me more about that. He said, well, I, I think I've realized that 
we can talk all day long about how people are evil, how there's no one who does good, no, not one, like Paul is saying here in Romans 3. And people can say, forget it, I don't want to listen to you. Or they can say, oh, that I disagree with you, let me debate with you. Or they can say, oh, I believe you, but it doesn't change them. See, in the end, the person, you either come to a place, you guys, where you say, um, I intellectually understand what, that I'm guilty before God. But until you come to the place where you not just intellectually agree with that, but you say, my heart needs to change. I, 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 I get it. I, I, re, I realize that um, it's not just a theory. It's an actual description of how I am. And there is a desire in my heart to reach out to God for forgiveness. And I want my life to be about his life. I want that. I may not even understand all the things in the Bible. I may not get the whole thing, but I know this much about myself. And I know that this sounds true to me, what the Bible is saying. And it's a heart issue. And so he says in verse 19 and 20 for here today, as we go on to that, he he sums this up and he says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law, comes the knowledge of sin. Now, I want you to keep your eyes on these these two verses, verse 19 and 20. Keep your eyes here. Because when he says the law in verse 19, he is not talking about when he says, now we know that whatever the law says, when he says the law in verse 19, he's not talking about government laws. And he's not talking about our own laws. What is he talking about? He's talking about God's laws. Revealed in God's word. Now, keep your eyes there. I want you to notice There's three responses that happen in the human heart, like Josh was talking about a few moments ago, of people who are ready to receive life in Jesus Christ. Three responses in these two verses that happen in the human heart in its natural state that God does in your heart to show that you are moving towards Christ, that you are ready for him. Number one, it says in verse 19, your mouth is stopped. Your mouth is stopped. You shut your mouth. When you hear that no one is righteous before God, when you hear that we are all sinners under God's law, your reaction to that is not, I'm going to defend myself against God, or God, you're wrong, or I don't care. Your reaction when God brings you to faith is actually we shut our mouths. Why? It's because we realize it's true. And what's the point to argue? Because God is accurately describing who I am with this. So the first right reaction is our mouths are stopped, verse 19. The second reaction is we realize, end of verse 19, we are accountable to God. End of verse 19, we're accountable to God. We say, Not only is God telling me the truth about who I am, but I 
realize I have an accountability to God. I don't have an accountability to go try and be the best person I can be so that God will love me. My accountability is that he has accurately described that I am under sin because of his law. And my accountability now is not that is God going to check up on me so I can do more good things. My accountability is that I'm going to face God's wrath. I will face his judgment. And I know that. And it puts fear in me. And that's a good thing. Because the fear of God in me is what's going to drive me towards him. See, when you're coming to faith, and when you hear that you are a sinner according to God's law, the signs that you are actually uh, ready for Jesus Christ is that you recognize that what he's saying is true. We stop arguing with God. We say, I am accountable to God. That brings fear to me. And number three in verse 20, because I have a knowledge of my sin. God's law has revealed to me my sin. If I didn't know God's law, I wouldn't know that I'm a sinner in my unregenerate state. See, when we hear in verse 19 and verse 20, when he says, whatever the law says, verse 19, verse 19, who are those who are under the law? When he says, verse 20, for by the works of the law, no human being will be justified. Verse 20 again, it is through the law comes the knowledge of sin. He uses the word law four times there. See, God's law is very different than man's law. See, when, man, when we have man's laws, we obey man's rules. Why do you obey man's rules? Because if you obey man's rules, you get paid. If you obey man's rules, you get rewarded. If you obey man's rules, then you don't get immediately punished in that moment. If you obey man's rules, there's a sense of societal order when we obey man's laws, man's rules. And sometimes we don't like man's laws and man's rules. And so we, we march in the streets. There was thousands and thousands of women in downtown L.A. yesterday um, protesting uh, the I- Iranian laws uh, that, that require women to wear a head covering over their heads. And that's happening in Iran. There's tens of thousands of women um, uh, demonstrations going on there, and uh, there was a huge march right in front of City Hall yesterday. But that's how we view man's laws. When we look at God's laws in verse 19 and 20, what we learned last week is the purpose of God's laws are twofold. Number one, God's laws are there to reveal to us, number one, the character of God, what God is like, And his standard of righteousness, that God is righteous, it reveals to us, number one. And number two, God's laws are there to reveal to us our unrighteousness. God's law reveals to us his righteousness, and it reveals to us our unrighteousness. And that is why he says in verse 20, through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Because when we hear God's law, we realize we are sinners, because God is righteous and I'm not. So if you're here and you're an unbeliever, um, this should be your reaction to God's law. In our Monday night group, we have a men's group, and we have been reading uh, the epistle of 1 Timothy. And one of the things that the men have been doing is we have said, okay, try and read 1 Timothy, all six chapters, once a day, every day, for the next few weeks. 
And so I've been doing that with the guys, and we just have a text stream, and we tell uh, each other if we read it that day. And I was reading First Timothy, and, and it struck me. In First Timothy chapter 1, verse 8, um, I want to read this to you, verse 8 and following, what Paul says about the law. And if you're an unbeliever, this should be your reaction to hearing God's law, that we are guilty before him and sinners. Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8, this should be your reaction as an unbeliever. Now we know that the law is good. We know that the law is good. So I'm here, I'm at church, I'm hearing this preacher tell me that in my natural spiritual state, I'm a sinner, that's what the Bible tells me, and I don't react and say, oh, that's your bogus preacher. I actually say, no, this is good. Paul's saying that the law is good. If one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. That should be your action. It should be like, you know what? You're speaking the truth to me. The Bible is speaking the truth to me. The law is good. Because what it is, is it's revealing to me that I am not a just person. I'm a lawless person. I'm a disobedient person. Verse 9, 1 Timothy 1. I'm an ungodly person. I'm a sinner. I'm unholy. I'm profane. And that is the truth. And see, when you're ready for salvation and you hear the truth, you don't get mad at it. You don't revile it. Because, and I think this happens too, sometimes the older we get, the more we just want someone to tell us the truth. When we're younger, we don't know the truth. But I think the older we get, we feel jaded. We've been lied to. We've been um, you know, betrayed so many times. And so you get to a place in life where you just want someone to tell me, tell you what is the truth? What is the wise way? What is the right and true and noble and excellent praiseworthy way of life? And you want that. And so even when someone tells you that in a way that's even offensive to you, you don't reject it. You say, yes, because I recognize you're telling me the truth. And see, if you're an unbeliever, you should have Paul's reaction that he had in 1 Timothy chapter 1. You say, the law's good. I'm glad I'm here. Because uh, this, this scripture is piercing my heart in a way that um, I don't get elsewhere. And so, my mouth is shut. I'm accountable to God. And the law has revealed to me my sin. That is you as an unbeliever. Now, if you're here as a believer, here's the good news. Again, staying with 1 Timothy for now. 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 12 through 17. If you're a believer, your reaction to this passage in Romans chapter 3 should be this. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12 through 17, you should be saying along with Paul, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly, 
I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserves full acceptance that, acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be, glory and, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. That should be our reaction, okay? You guys, um, do not walk away from this service. Do not walk away from this sermon and just say, that was an intellectually stimulating thing, Pastor. It's kind of like a TED Talk that I watched on YouTube. This should be a reminder to you. If you're an unbeliever, you are in deadly eternal peril as of this moment, as of your entire life, to be honest. And what you should be doing is what the scripture says. Scripture says, make today the day of your salvation. You should not leave this place before confessing Jesus as Lord and saying, I believe that my only, only hope is that he died on the cross because no, I'm one of those guys. I'm one of those guys that is not good. No, I'm not one of those people that no, not good, not one. And so he, I need he to die on the cross. You did that. I believe that Jesus and rise again. I want to be forgiven. I want to be made right. I want to have peace with God. And I want that to happen today. And that can happen to you today. If you express your faith in Jesus Christ and you say, my life is your life, Lord. I'm committed to following you as my Lord and Savior. Are you willing to do that today? If you are here in unbelief, the Lord, the Bible says, will offer you salvation and will come into your life to give you new life. Now, if you're a believer, uh, you should look at this message and uh, you should be reminded that you know you were once this person. And it's so easy for us to forget and we become ungraceful people. We become, um, we just forget God's grace and his mercy. The longer it is with, that the time has passed between when we made a profession of faith and, um, you know, and today. The longer that time period is, sometimes it's easier for us to forget. And we forget that there are many people out there. I mean, we're out there at Teacher Street Fair last night, right? I don't know how many people came by our booth. Was it 500? Probably. And uh, probably more. How many of those people you think um, are the no one who does good, no not one people? How many of those people you think are the ones that Paul is talking about here in verse 19 and 20 who says that um, no human being will be justified in his sight? because we have the knowledge of sin, and how terrible the fury and wrath of God will be in the pit of hell for all of eternity. All those smiling faces at the Artesia Street Fair last night, right? And I, I, I have to say, it is a valid argument 
to say, and you don't normally hear this from church, you guys, but I will say this. And I'm not talking about any one individual at any one time, okay? I'm not talking specifically about last night when I say this. What I'm about to say, hear me on this, I'm really talking about just a wide sampling of your Christian walk. Okay, so I'm not talking about were you there last night or not. That's not my point. My point is you have to be able to look at your life and say, there is tangible evidence, not for my salvation, but the t- tangible evidence because it's just the right thing that I am devoting my a, a, a large part of my life to being missional, to being those that Paul talks about in Romans 10, how beautiful are the feet of those who, who bring the gospel to others. And do you see that in your life? And if you don't, you have to ask yourself the question, have I forgotten the mercy and the peace and the grace that God has been given to me? Have I been soaked up too much in my own life? And one of the ways that we forget is that healing happens in our own life as we take the focus off of ourselves and put it on to those who are in a far worse position than we are. And God heals us through that as well. I was at the Artesian Street Fair last night. And we got there, and, you know, as soon as we got there, um, you know, I was thanking everyone for coming. I got, um, you know, I got some church cards that were there, and I went to the front of the booth, and I said, the best use of me being here is I'm just going to go to the front of the booth, and I'm just going to start talking to people. So I got into about three or four conversations (coughs) with people. And within 15 minutes after we got there, I got a text on my phone. It was a long text. No one from this church. And I read it, and when I read it, I started to shake. And I was really, it was really a disorienting text to me. Um, And I'm not going to go into the details of what the text was, but um, I was so disoriented that at one point I pulled David Yee and Norm, and I said, can you walk with me? And we walked to the side alley, and I just need you to pray for me right now. Okay. And um, the content of the text was such that um, it just reminded me of some evil that I had seen happen in my life that was not me, but that was um, that I was witness to. Let's just put it that way: some evil that I was witness to. And it had to do with several individuals. And I, there was a lot of thoughts that were going through my mind. But one of the thoughts that went through my mind as David and Norm was praying, David prayed first. And before Norm pray, prayed, I just said, hey, Norm, I want to pray. And so in my prayer there on Pioneer Boulevard, I said, Lord, I am asking that your right judgment would be done. And I am asking that for the parties involved... Anyone who's involved in this entire... And this, this situation has nothing to do with this church, okay? Um, anyone who's involved in this situation, um, those who have not come to faith, would, you, would they be convicted of their sin? And I pray for their salvation. And I just kind of left it at that. Now, why did I do that? I'll be honest with you, okay? And this is going to be recorded, so... Um, <clears throat> I'm a human being, and as a human being, um, with the content of that text, I will be honest with you, there is a side of me that was like, you know what, if these people are not saved, then so be it, because um, they deserve what they get. Okay? And I had that moment, okay? 
And I'd be lying to you if I didn't. But then I caught myself and I said, no, you know what? I can have a righteous anger, but at the same time, it doesn't need to go to that place. I can have a righteous anger, but I need to remember, like Paul said here in 1 Timothy, um, I was a blasphemer myself. I was a persecutor. I was the foremost of sinners, and yet God's mercy and grace, his patience has been made manifest on me so that others may hear the message of eternal life. And it made me a more merciful person in that moment. I say this to you in closing because these doctrines are not just doctrines. These doctrines are real because when you grasp that you are the recipient for your, in your belief in Christ of God's mercy, you are the recipient, recipient of his grace and goodness. You know what happens to you is you start to look at these other people in this room and you don't say, oh, I like you or I don't or you're different or you're weird or you're not or whatever that is. You say, no, what makes, what brings us all together in this room is that we are all saved by God's grace. We are all recipients of God's mercy. And that is the, that is the thing that has brought us together. And that's why we're equal in the cross. So there is no room for my wrong judgment of people because I realize myself, I, I am rejecting the grace and peace. I'm rejecting that remembrance that I need to remember when I have the wrong attitude of myself and towards other people in God. And so we're going to close with communion right now. And um, as we close, we are going to um, read a few scriptures. Um, I'd like to invite you, actually, for you who are believers, why don't you um, come on up to the communion table, and you can receive your elements right now. You can go ahead and do that right now. Bring it back to your seat. I'll read from script, some scriptures, and then we'll receive communion together. So um, go ahead and approach the communion table. Communion table is open to all who, those who profess to be followers of Jesus Christ. And go ahead and take that. Go back to your seat. And then we'll receive communion together.
Yeah, I'd like us to go ahead and bow in prayer. I'm going to read to you three scriptures. I'm just going to read them. I'm going to pray for communion. Take a few moments. I want you to use this time as a time to uh, just come before the Lord in stillness, recognizing you're not God, He is. To hear the words of Scripture, let it soak into your soul. Meditate on this. These are all scriptures, these three, about communion. And let God's word speak to us. In Matthew chapter 26, verse 26 and following. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread. And after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is the bl- my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Matthew 26. Luke 24. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if they were going further, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And he rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. Luke chapter 24. First Corinthians 11. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup, After supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. 
For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But we judged ourselves truly. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Father, as we receive now the elements, this is our declaration that we need the shed blood of Christ to cover over our sins. And that it is a reminder to us of our great need for your grace and mercy. That you have been patient with us. We ask for your forgiveness for our sins, Lord. We ask that you would cleanse us of all unrighteousness through the blood of Christ. We ask, Lord, that is through his resurrection power that we may live sanctified lives, that our lives may glorify and honor you. And so, Lord, now as we receive these elements, may your grace be upon us. In Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and receive the bread representing the broken body of Christ. And receive the juice representing the shed blood of Christ. Amen and amen. We're going to go ahead and close in worship now.